As you know, there is a chance that this is my last sermon preaching to you. I have no doubt that for some it probably will be. Though, one way or another, though that has not been the prayer of my heart. So, how do you preach what what is probably the last sermon that some will hear? Advice I was given was that you preach Christ and you preach Him crucified and you lift Him high. And I love this passage because of what it says about Jesus Christ. About why He came. About how we are to live a life that's pleasing to Him by living through Him and in His example. There are really three components to this sermon. It's titled, In Humility. Verse 1 really asks the question, is he even talking to you? So point number one will be, is he talking to you? Point number two, if he is talking to you, then complete his joy. And point number three, if he is talking to you, have the mind of Christ. God wants his people to live in humility towards each other and toward himself, just like his son did. The context here is a church in Philippi. It's a good church. Paul founded this church. It's a diverse church. If you think back to the book of Acts and all that happened in Philippi, the church was really founded with three people that we meet. You get this woman, Lydia, a seller of purple from Thyatira. She's rich. You have a Philippian jailer who gets saved after God does the miraculous and reveals himself to him. And you have his family. He's Roman. He's not a Jew. You also have this slave girl who had a demon cast out of her. And all these people are in this church. And there are others also of very diverse backgrounds. Later on, In chapter 4, we learn about two women, Eodia and Syntyche, and and how they are quarreling with each other. Though this is a good church, though these are Paul's friends, it's not perfect. There's strife and there are struggles. And so Paul writes to them, and look at what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection And sympathy. This word encouragement, it's the root of the word that Jesus Christ gives us later when he says, I will send to you another, I will send a comforter. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Is there any encouragement? Is there any comfort that comes exclusively from Christ? He says, Is is there any comfort, any, any soothing? That comes from love. Does God's love soothe you? Is there any participation? This word also means fellowship. Is there any fellowship with the Spirit of God? Is there any affection? This word means that it's coming from deep within. It's referring to the bowels, to the innermost part. Are there any tender mercies, any inward feelings of sympathy, of God-like compassion? In short, he's saying, are you saved? Are you saved? If yes, everything else he writes is to you. If not, it's not. Are you saved? If so, then you have the Spirit. You have been encouraged. You have been comforted about your sin and all of your failings. 
You have great affection for Christ, much less from Christ. And you have received compassion directly from God. Peter, or excuse me, Paul writes about that. He says, comfort with one another with the comfort which, which we ourselves have been comforted by God. So God has a right then, if he has done all of this in our lives, he has a right to make demands on our lives since he's given us so much. Let me tell you, if his Holy Spirit never guides you, if you have never been in agony over your sin, true suffering because of a realization of the weight of all that you have done against a holy God, if you have never been in agony over your sin to where his love was the only comfort and the only way that you could carry on, then you are not saved and he's not talking to you. If his Holy Spirit doesn't lead you to a vertical relationship, that's what this word fellowship means, participation, if it doesn't lead you to a vertical relationship with God, which then leads to a horizontal relationship, a fellowship with other Christians based on faith and freedom and submission and humility and emptying of self for the sake of Christ. If you don't find that we have all these amazing things in common because of what we possess in Jesus Christ, then you've not been saved. And he's not talking to you. If he has not put a new mercy, a tenderness, a deep affection for Christians and a great compassion for them in spite of all of their shortcomings, then he's not talking to you. You do not know Christ. You only know Christ. But if you have experienced these sweet blessings of life in Christ, then he is talking to you and he has made two demands on your life. It brings us to our second point. He says, complete my joy. Verse 2, take a look if you got your word or take a look up on the screen. Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We'll stop there. We owe it to God to bring joy to his heart. This is not primarily about Paul, though Paul is the one writing, right? But this is about bringing joy to God's heart. God is not happy when we are bitter towards one another. Any more than you when you've had children, and and especially if you have adult children, they don't get along. And it tears your heart to shreds. And you just desire that there would be unity. We owe it to God to bring joy to his heart. If that is not the purpose of your life, to bring joy to his heart, to glorify him, then you're wasting your life. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that you can be saved and you can make it to heaven, but there will not be crowns waiting for you? That he will not necessarily say to you, you've been faithful in a little I will put you over much. Instead, he'll say, well, you made it. You didn't do much. You were faithful with very, very little. And so I will put you over very, very little. Your life is to be lived to the glory of God and not about 
self. If we're doing anything else, we're wasting our life. You can't possibly bring joy to God if you... You can't possibly bring joy to God if you do not do the things that he instructs from here on out. Verse 2, being of one mind, having the same love, being of full accord in one mind. Being of the same mind. How do you do that? How do you take Lydia, who's a rich Jew? How do you take a slave girl who, who has been demon-possessed and this Philippian jailer who's a Roman, and they're coming from all these different places, never mind Yodi and Syndicate and, and, and these who are at, at odds with each other. How do you take all these people with all their different diverse interests and make them one? It's impossible in the flesh, isn't it? You have the same mind only when you are Christ-minded. When you have the mind of Christ, see, he can and he will take over your thoughts. He can renew your mind through his word. Amen? Amen. So you get into scripture. You want to be Christ-minded? Get into scripture. Get scripture into you. Meditate on scripture and let it renew your mind so that your thoughts will not be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's how you change. We become one and of one mind by each of us changing being conformed to the mind of Christ. And what else do you need to do, brothers and sisters? It means that when the Bible talks about your sin, when it's addressing it, don't go on to the next passage and read something that's comforting to you and what you want to hear. Don't tickle your own ears. Have pet verses. Have books that you skip over. Be troubled. When Scripture points out your sin and your shortcomings... Stay there and let it have its work and repent. Pray for God to change you and to change your mind about these things. Pray at the very least that he would give you a desire to change. How do we have the same love? Well, we got to begin with the question, what love is it we're supposed to have that's the same? Some love NASCAR. Some love hymns. Some love praise songs. What love is it? It's the love that Christ has for his people. This is all about Christ. This is not an affection. This is not a feeling. This is a covenantal love, a promised love. Not about emotions, not about performance. It is, I will love no matter what. No matter what they have done, I will love. Because that's the love of which Christ loves you. He loves you no matter what you do. In spite of all of your sin, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And God is telling you towards your brothers and sisters, never leave them, never forsake them. When you find that you don't love like this, which is normally the case, right? Repent. Confess. Do you know who it is that you're supposed to love in this way? It's not just your wife, your family. It's not those on the same pew, even. It is quite literally every Christian in the entire world that you are to love in this way. Sacrificially, covenantally, no matter what offense they may have committed. 
How can we be of full accord of one spirit of one mind like he commands us to do? Well, it begins by examining your hearts to see if you are in discord. Accord means basically that we would all be singing the same note or the same set of three notes for those of you who are musically inclined. But sometimes we can be discordant. You hear me up here? I'll try to sing harmony. Every once in a while, I'll be discordant. Maybe you'll hear me. I try to get quiet real quick if I find that that I'm a little bit off. I can only know if I'm off if I listen, if I pay attention. If I just close my eyes and let her rip, It's not very pleasing, right? It doesn't bring joy to anybody's hearts. So we have to pay attention. We have to examine our own hearts to see if we're in discord. Pray. Search the scripture. Ask wise counsel. What am I saying? If you find that you disagree with other Christians, do not assume that you're right, they're wrong. Do not assume. Who's to say what's right or wrong? It's not you. It's not me. It's not anyone else. It is the word of God. To the extent that we know the word of God, we can say I'm right or I'm wrong. That's it. It can't just be this is what I want. I'm right. This is what I think. I'm right. We must go to scripture. We can be of one accord, one note, one song when this is the sheet music. The problem is we don't go to this. We go to this. And this is wicked beyond all things. And who can know it? So again, pray, search the scripture, ask wise counsel. Am I right or am I wrong? What does this scripture have to say about that? And let go of self. We need to be thinking together, having the same thoughts. Whose thoughts, whose voice should we listen to? Whose direction should we follow? Is it yours? Is it mine? Is it the deacons? Is it the choirs? You know what? If we're going to be of one accord, one mind, the direction that we follow must be Christ's. That's the only way we can all go. Church is not supposed to be a bunch of folks being their own drummers. Jesus is the drummer. He is the leader. He gives the direction. But you must have Christ or you will be deaf to him. You must die to self and take up your cross. You must get into his word if you would know his direction. Paul turns his instruction here from do's All the things he's saying to do to a bunch of don'ts in verse 3. So take a look at verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not, or excuse me, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's about personal accountability. So what's he saying about this, this selfish ambition? He's saying, am I motivated by selfishness? Is it me at all costs? Is it me regardless of strife? Literally, when I looked that word up, that was one of the definitions. Seeking my will and my way regardless of the strife that it causes others. So what, is, what do we do? We literally look at what we're striving for. 
Why is it that this thing that's causing discord is so important to me? What is it? And why am I doing it? What is my motivation? So those are just words. Let me give you some practical things, okay? If you're a note taker or whatever, just get this. Number one, just look at who's benefiting from your striving. Who makes out if you get what you want? If it's God, if God benefits from what you're striving for, then then these things will be true. Then it's going to be for God's kingdom. Somehow God's kingdom is going to come. It's going to be revealed to people. He's going to be glorified. If it's, if it's for God and he's benefiting, then that means that there's going to be greater obedience to his word for yourself or for others. We're going to do what the word says. If it's for God, then it means that we're going to uh, bring God glory. How do you glorify God? By obeying him, by lifting him up, by honoring him. If it's going to be about God, then it's going to help others. You know what's missing from this? Me. If this is about God, then it's not about me. It's not about what I get. It's about what God gets. It's about what others get. Look at who benefits from our striving. If that striving is about selfishness, then it means that you're going to have your own way. It means that you're going to prevent change. It means that you're going to keep others from having their way. It's going to be about tug of war and making sure that the rope gets pulled a little tighter to your side. What about conceit as a motivation for actions? That's, that's another thing he says here in verse 3, right? Uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is a, an interesting word here. It literally in the Greek reads empty glory. So if you would do something to get something for yourself, it's, an, it's a form of glory. You're bringing attention to yourself. You're bringing praise to yourself. You're bringing position to yourself. But it's empty. It holds nothing. It won't be there in heaven. Think about that for a minute. What does Jesus say? He says, if you would be the greatest, you must be the least. If you would be first in heaven, you must be last on earth. If your life is about you becoming first in all things, when you get to heaven, you're going to be at the back of the line, literally. It's an empty glory. It's also opposite of God's glory. When we strive for ourselves, we deny God the glory. It looks like striving to get honor or power or prestige or authority and doing it for yourself rather than God. It means taking it for yourself rather than allowing God to give it. Does God not honor? Does God not glorify even men? He he does. If this is you, then what do you do with this selfish ambition or this conceit? Step away. Step down. Step aside. Let go of it. And let God deal with your heart. He may well return it to you when you're ready for it. But if you're not ready for it, it's not good for you to have it. If you've taken it for yourself, God has not given it. That's not his blessing. That is the work of your hands. Repent and relinquish control. Now, instead of all these things that are about me, 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 look at what he says. He says, uh, 
but in humility. But in humility. Let each of you, verse 4, look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We're to humbly count others as more significant than ourselves. This is the opposite of glory. This is the opposite of pride. We almost don't have to go any further than this. What's the answer to unity in the church? It's humility. It is humility. Paul says that to bring joy to God, we must act out of humility. Our pride or selfish ambition does not please God. So compared to how we value everyone else, we need to value ourselves low. We need to put their wishes above ours, their desires above ours, their needs above ours. More importantly, we need to put Christ's wishes, Christ's desires, Christ's needs above ours because he is greater and consider ourselves less. And when we do that, there will be unity. The world doesn't know what to do with this word, humility, by the way. They don't have a box for it. The world says you need self-esteem. The problem is you need more self-worth. The problem is you need to know your value. And the Bible says no. It's the opposite of self-esteem. It's the opposite of self-worth. It's the opposite of value. Your true worth, your true value, when you will be glorified and lifted up, when you have your place, is when you make yourself less and you make Christ everything. Then you'll have your place. Then there will be unity. What are they doing in our nation? They're out in the streets. They're rioting. They're looting. They're marching. They're trying to pass laws. They're trying to turn us into a a communist country because they think all these things are the answers for the disunity and the problems that we have. And what what does Paul say? Humble yourself. Don't demand your rights. Lay your rights down and lift up Christ. And then we can be one. Let's take a look at verse 3 and 4 one more time. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Look after the interest of others and not yours alone. That's why there's strife and division in the church. These things that Paul is saying that we have to do, they're they're supernatural because every cell in your body says, take care of me. Every part of your flesh says that. And here God says, no, look after everyone else at your own expense. The world says, look after you at their expense. God says, look after them at your expense. And isn't that what Christ did on the cross Didn't he take care of you at his own expense? And that's the pattern he wants you to follow for his life. That's who he wants his bride to be. So we ask questions in our hearts like, what is good for him? What's good for her? What do the new people think? 
What will it take for younger people to feel comfortable here in this church? What kind of songs do we think that families will want to sing when they come in here? Is there anything in here that would be an obstacle to new people coming? Is there anything that I can give up to see God glorified in this place? Are there any places where our religion is offensive to Jesus Christ? That's how you bring joy to the heart of God, by denying yourself, making everything in your life about him and his mission. This is how you keep from having divisions in the church, by making everything about Christ. Brings us to the third point, have the mind of Christ. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It begins with having Christ. If you have Christ, then you have this mind. If you don't have Christ, you don't have this mind. But if you have it, you still must be conformed to it. Let's look at Christ with me. Look at what he says about him. Who, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God. He is God. If anyone had a claim to glory, it was him. But instead of this, this word grasped, it, mean, it, it, it means like to seize, to take, to plunder. Instead of taking a higher position to put himself equal with God, he did the opposite. He did the thing you and I would never do. He let go of his glory. He let go of his dignity. He let go of it all. He did the opposite of what Satan did. Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to glorify himself, so he reached to seize and to grasp. That's what Eve did in the garden. She believed what Satan said. You'll be like God. Go take and eat. But he didn't do that. Instead, what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Understand this. The king of all heaven emptied himself of his glory. And he came and he was born among sinful men, born in a manger among the animals, raised by a a mother who was an unwed teenager, raised in poverty, raised in a region that was despised. The people were looked down on. They, They talked funny, reviled, insulted his entire life. The king of glory came, and he came to serve. And what does that mean to serve? Look, at, He says, to, he, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how he served us. He did the thing for us that we could never do for ourselves. He paid for our sin. He did the thing we would never do for anyone else. He gave up himself completely. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name 
that is above every name. Jesus did not take glory for himself, but he laid it down. And in laying it down, God glorified him, giving him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, every tongue confess. On earth, in heaven, under the earth. Confess what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, that's, that's the gospel here. That's the thing that, that we, we could possibly be missing. Is that we can't do this for ourselves. That Jesus Christ loved us so much that he came to do what we could not do. Your sin... If you don't see your sin as being so ugly, so monumentally great in number, that it's soul-crushing, then you don't understand. If it's not that, if it's never been that in your life, that you just, you just, you don't know how you can carry on because of the weight that's on you, then you will never look at Christ in his glory. You will never see him as being worthy of following. He will never be your Lord. Apart from Christ, you have no hope. You are completely separated from God for eternity. You cannot serve yourself. There is nothing you can do to take away the weight of sin. But he loves you so much that he came to buy you. He bought you at the precious cost of his blood. He redeemed you from the world and he made you part of a family that is called his church. He made you his bride, which is his church. And he wants you to be radiant and beautiful, free of sin, obeying him as he obeys the father, denying your rights, your preferences, laying it all down as he did for the father and for us. Living your life for other people the way he lived it for you? But it comes only by faith. That's why there's an if here. Just because we know who he is, just because we mentally profess him, does not mean that we know him or that we have him. Because if we have him, all those things he said in the beginning are going to be true. His spirit will be in us. There will be fellowship. There will be joy. There will be comfort. There will be all these things. And there will be a desire to live for him. How many people sit in a pew week in and week out their whole lives and never understand this? Because they're taught a very, very cheap grace. Grace brothers and sisters, is free. But it is costly. Why would God do that? Why would he send his son? Paul shows us. Verses 9 through 11. We're almost done. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He does it because this is how Christ is lifted up. This is how Christ is glorified for all eternity. It is the cross. It is by being a servant and by being a savior. If you've sought power, glory, position, honor, respect for yourself, then you have not had this mind of Christ that we're commanded to have. You've had the mind of Antichrist. What does that word mean? It means that you've had the mind of putting yourself in Christ's position. You have been Lord of your life. You have been the one to be glorified. You have been the one that it's all about and not about him. Repent if that is you. And, and let's be real. That's all of us, isn't it? We all have some of that. We all need to repent of all the places that we have made life about us and not about him and his glory and his joy. If you sought to serve yourself rather than serving others, it is not Christ that you're doing for. He says that he came to serve and not be served. Any glory we get for ourselves is empty and it's seized. Now look real closely with me. There's just, I think, two words in particular that we want to see. Verse 11, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Lord. He's king. He's master. He's ruler. He's commander. He's authority. He's head of your life. He's head of the church. His word is not a recommendation. It is a command. It is to be obeyed because it came from the one who gave you life and gave it abundantly. He's Lord. There is no salvation that does not have Jesus as Lord and Master. There is no salvation that has you as Lord or Master of your own life. There is no salvation that does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't mean that we think he's Lord, that we repeat that he's Lord, that we say that he's Lord. It means that we freely, publicly, from deep in the heart, proclaim and praise that Jesus Christ is the master of my life, of my church, of this world. Whether you know it or not, one day everyone will You can roll your eyes. He is Lord and he will be high and lifted up. And if that is your spirit, you need to repent now. If you cannot sit and hear about Christ being lifted up, but if the division in your own heart is so great that you will sit there and roll your eyes, repent. Be in fear of a holy God. There is no salvation that is not first, last, and always about the glory of God the Father. That's what this is all about. That's what you're about. That's what your sin's about. That's what Satan's about. That's what the cross is about. That's about what Christ's exaltation is about. It is about the glory of 
of God the Father. If you don't see that, there is no hope of unity. Now, you might hear this message and you might think unity at all costs. In fact, that's how a lot of people live, right? Let's think about that for a second. What do you see missing right here, folks? There's no windows. You look outside, you can see where they were. What happened? It's time to get curtains. And people fought over the color of the curtains. And instead of bringing people to the word of God, this church just covered over the windows. There are people who are striving for their own way, for their tradition, for their rights, for their power, for their position. And they will point the finger at me and they'll say, well, you're striving. There's division. And you might think, well, unity at all purpose. Let's just, let's just cover the windows. Let's do whatever we can so that we can keep going on. Let me read something to you. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 through 19. It ties right back into the first verse of this. It says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We do not insist on unity with those who do not follow God's word at the expense of God's word. Those who are his will follow his word. Those who are not will insist on their own way. And don't get me wrong. Any believer can insist on their own way at any given time, but it is a scary thing to stand opposed to his word. So what do we do? We need to be of the mind of Christ. We need to subject our own desires to the desires of Christ first, which means we will then do it for others second. And not only those who are here, but those who will be here in the future. Do you understand that this church will be handed off to another generation? You will not be here. You will not be here. We labor not for ourselves. We labor for a world that needs to be one for Christ. The people who are here will be here in 20, 30 years. They're not here today. And many of us will be gone. Will there be anything left? It means lay down your claims and your rights. It means let go of empty glory. It means let's agree to follow God's word and to obey all that it says. And let's live for God's glory alone. Then we'll be of one mind, Christ's mind, to bring joy to his heart. And there will be no strife among ourselves.